I would invite you this morning to take the infallible record of the Word of God and turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. Luke, chapter 2. I would like to open up the Word to you in verses 8 through 14. And I've entitled my discourse to you this morning, The Pinnacle of of praise. Let me read the text to you, Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 8. And in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. What a marvelous passage of scripture we have before us this morning. We come once again to another Christmas season. A season that has unfortunately fallen into hard times. It should be a time where we celebrate the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as you know, especially in our culture, that has been pushed aside. And now it is basically a time that has been hijacked by Satan himself, a time that is reserved more for materialism for greed, for gluttony, and sometimes even drunken debauchery. Well, dear friends, my goal for this morning is certainly not to entertain you, but to somehow restore the dominion of God within your souls as we come to this text, as we focus on some essential truths pertaining to the incarnation of Christ. We want to examine the deep truths of God's revelation. Worship should be a very transcendent experience. It should be something that gives glory to God. But may I remind you that you will never be able to go high in worship unless you have first gone deep into God's self-revelation. We can only rise in transcendent worship in the same proportion that we have plumbed the depths of his word. Much of what passes for preaching today, I fear, is as shallow as water on a plate. It is typically simplistic, mundane, often inane, and it is merely entertainment. And unfortunately, when that happens, many times congregations are banished to islands of spiritual infancy where they're bereft of power and discernment and indifferent to the glory of God. So we want to be true worshipers whereby our hearts respond to the depths of the Word of God. So as we look at this text this morning, 
I want to invite you to notice three things. First of all, we will see the terror of divine glory as we endeavor to understand the significance of this terrifying light that's shown around the shepherds. Secondly, we will examine the tidings of great joy as we grasp the infinite significance pertaining to the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And finally, we're going to examine the triumph of sovereign grace as we learn the reason why the heavenly host erupted in such praise. And we will also endeavor to understand the meaning of peace on earth, a phrase that is commonly misunderstood and distorted. So it is my prayer that each of you will leave forever the lowlands of earthly Christmas and join with me as we climb to the pinnacle of praise as we examine this theological Everest, if you will, of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The context, as you may recall, Mary has given birth to the Christ child. He is now wrapped in cloths, as they typically did. They would wrap their little arms and their body and their legs, and they thought that was important to keep them comfortable and even to help their bones grow straight. And so, like any other child, he was wrapped, but he, unlike other children, was laid in a manger, which is nothing more than an animal trough. A marvelous picture of the humiliation of Christ. A condescension, frankly, that boggles our mind. But then five miles away, another miracle takes place. An astounding event that is filled with profound spiritual meaning. Notice in verse 8, and in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock. By night. Now, the Jewish Mishnah, which is the clarification of Jewish law, reveals to us with some measure of confidence that these shepherds were tending sheep in a very specific region, a region that was used to basically pasture sheep for temple sacrifices. Especially during Passover, there would be as many as a quarter of a million Animals sacrificed. The blood would run like a stream out of the temple, down through the Cadron uh, Valley, down through the brook. And so it's interesting that this is probably the sheep and the pasture where this amazing event took place. And then when we think of the shepherds, you must understand that the shepherds were the lowest on the socioeconomic ladder in that particular culture. In fact, they were not even allowed to give testimony in court. They were considered ceremonially unclean. What a unique identification the Lord Jesus would have with these humble men. The Lord Jesus being announced to them first. The lowly shepherd rejected, despised, forsaken. The Lord of glory and yet... No credibility. And what an amazing demonstration of grace to see that the good news of the Savior's birth is first to be announced to the lowliest of the culture. Like those shepherds, the great shepherd of the sheep would live and die in poverty. 
But unlike the sheep they tended, the Lamb of God would be the perfect and the final sacrifice for sin. And who better to be the first messengers of the good news than these poor, oppressed men, those that the world despised? A picture of the man of sorrows and certainly a picture of the apostles that would come. First, I would draw your attention to the concept of the terror of divine glory. In verse 9, we read that an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. Now, we must ask, what is happening here? What is the glory of the Lord? What is so terrifying about this? What's going on with this angelic messenger? Well, some Old Testament background is important for you to understand at this point. You see, the presence of God was always housed in the tabernacle and later on in the temple there in the Holy of Holies. In fact, the Hebrew term for tabernacle is Mishkan, and that is derived from the root word Shakan, which means to dwell or rest or abide. And from Shekhan came the word Shekinah, which means in the Old Testament, the idea of the glorious presence of the Lord, the presence of God, the glory of the Lord. And so this was a brilliant light. And this was always an ineffable, if I can use that term, which means too wonderful to even utter from the lips kind of light. It was a magnificent, overwhelming, brilliant, dazzling light. It was the effulgence of God's glory, revealing the very presence of God. And we know, according to the Old Testament, that it hovered between the cherubim over the mercy seat, which was atop the Ark of the Covenant that held the violated law. You will remember in Daniel 2.22 that... God emanates light without shadow. And there we read that light dwells with him. And the psalmist tells us in Psalm 104 and verse 2 that he covers himself with light as with a garment. And in 1 John 1, 5, we read that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And as we study the word of God, we see that God is spirit. But whenever he materialized himself... He would reduce his attributes to visible light. The Shekinah, a blazing forth of the glory of God. That, dear friends, was the glory of the Lord. So the glory of the Lord refers to his presence being manifested now as this resplendent, brilliant, unapproachable light. Light like the shining of the sun. This was the same Shekinah. That, you may recall, continued to glow on the face of Moses after he descended from Mount Sinai. A reflection of the glory of God that was so bright that the Israelites could not look, the text says, intently at his face in 2 Corinthians 3. Now, the Shekinah, you must understand, is now being housed within an infant child. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus Christ, the light of the world. In John 1.14, we read that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. 
And Paul described the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 15, as the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. Now, it's important as well for us to understand some more Old Testament background that the Jews would have understood very well in this day. Certainly, these shepherds would have understood this. In Ezekiel's prophecy, in chapters 8 through 10, there is a description of the hideous corruption of idolatry that characterized the Jewish people of that day. And the gradual departing of this glorious presence of God from the temple. If we read Ezekiel, we will discover that the Shekinah rises from between the cherub and then it begins to hover over the threshold of the temple court. Then we read later how it moves over towards the east gate of the Lord's house, the same gate that the Savior would later depart from when he was rejected. And then in chapter 11 and verse 23, we read that the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is east of the city, which is a reference to the Mount of Olives. This, dear friends, is the precise sequence of return that will occur when the Lord Jesus comes once again in power and great glory. Now, you must understand that it's been 500 years that the glorious presence of God has been away from apostate Israel. There's been no sign of his presence. There's been no glory. There's been no sighting of angels. And now, suddenly, this celestial brilliance of his Shekinah comes and envelops a group of lowly shepherds caring for sacrificial sheep on a Judean hillside. Do you understand why they would be so terrified? So too was Ezekiel, if you read his description of what he saw in Ezekiel 1. Likewise, Isaiah, when he saw the glory of the Lord in Isaiah 6. Later on, we could read of Peter, James, and John. Remember, on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Lord Jesus pulls back his flesh and allows the Shekinah to be released, and it terrifies them. There in Matthew 17, verse 2, Matthew describes it saying, His face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. This, beloved, was the same light that appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. Remember when Paul recounted his conversion in Acts 26, verse 13, he said, At midday, in other words, in the middle of the day with the sun shining, along the road I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And you read on and see that it caused them all to fall down on their faces in terror. And now the angel appears out of this glorious light of the Lord to announce that finally the prophecy of Balaam in Numbers twenty four seventeen 
a prophecy that had been predicted some 1400 years before Christ. Finally, it is being fulfilled. And there we read a star shall come forth from Jacob and a scepter shall rise from Israel. A star in Hebrew is a koshav, which means a blazing forth, a shining forth of light. Oh, child of God, you must understand this. Otherwise, you're going to miss some of the profound truths of the incarnation of Christ. This was the sign of the incarnate Christ. He was the personification of the Shekinah. He was the light of the world. He was the true tabernacle of God that came and dwelt among men. To die for all who will believe, to be the propitiation or the satisfaction for sin. Allowing the redeemed to be able to enter into his presence by the blood that he would shed. This was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that we read earlier today in chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And later in verse 6 of Isaiah's prophecy, he went on to describe the character of that great light to come. He says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. I might add as a footnote that this is the same Shekinah that led the Persian kingmakers to the place where Jesus lived some months later. The text tells us that it was a star, and in Greek that is an aster, which means, once again, a blazing forth, a shining forth of magnificent light. So the shepherds are petrified, but quickly the angel brings comfort to their panic-stricken hearts, and this leads us to our second observation, and that is the tidings of great joy. Notice verse 10. And the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people, all the people, a specific reference to Israel and through them to all of the nations of the world. Then the magnificent messenger went on to explain this good news of great joy. And he does so, I want you to notice, by giving a threefold description of. Of Jesus. Verse 11. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The word Savior is a term that means one who makes safe, a deliverer, a rescuer, even a preserver. And the question that naturally arises here is what is he coming to save us from? And I might add that the great counterfeit of neo-evangelicalism today, the apostate gospel that is pre being preached today, is that Christ basically comes to save us from our poor self-esteem. Christ came to uh, save us from our negative emotions or our uh, destructive and unsatisfying relationships or from our poverty or from, from sickness and disease or our lack of purpose or lack of success, and on and on it goes. That Jesus somehow basically suffered and died to rescue me from my unhappiness. 
Dear friend, you must understand that Jesus came and he lived and he died to save us from our sins. Sin is the violation of God's law. We read in 1 John 3, 4, sin is lawlessness. It is literally the failure to conform to his will and to his character. Sin is the defining characteristic of the very nature that separates us, the Bible says, from the life of God and makes us his enemies, even makes us subject to his wrath. Because of sin, as we study scripture, we understand that everything that we do, everything that we are is fundamentally offensive to God, rendering us guilty before his bar of justice and damned to an eternal hell. The Bible tells us that because of innate corruption, we are unable to even obey the essence of the first and greatest commandment to love God with a supreme love. We understand from Scripture that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that we are spiritual cadavers, that we are utterly unable to save ourselves. But, beloved, as horrible as that news is, there is a news that therefore is so incredibly great. And that's what the angel said. There is a good news of great joy. Today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior. But he is also, notice, Christ. You must understand this is a title. It's not a name. Christos means the anointed one. It's the Hebrew equivalent of the word Messiah. Jesus was God's anointed one. He was commissioned by the Father to be prophet, priest, and king. Messianic expectations ran high in those days. And now, the angel says, the anointed one has arrived. He is here. The long-promised Messiah who would fulfill the Davidic promise to establish a kingdom for Israel and a kingdom that would last forever and even extend into the new heavens and the new earth. He is here. But also the anointed one refers to Jesus in terms of his role as prophet, priest and king. In other words, Jesus is the savior of the world in his prophetic, in his sacerdotal and his regal offices. You see, in the Old Testament, we read that in those ancient days, prophets and priests and kings were always anointed with oil. Very important concept. And this happened whenever they were installed into their respective offices. But as we read scripture, we see that only Jesus held all three offices. Because he alone is the anointed one from God. As prophet, he is the one who would preach the gospel and instruct men in the great truths of God, being able to say, thus saith the Lord. As priest, he alone could offer up sacrifice and make atonement for sin. He alone is the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He alone is the one that can transform sinners and bring them into the very presence of the glory of God. And as king, he alone is the one that can reign and rule in the hearts of men. He alone is the one that sovereignly rules over his universe as king of kings 
and Lord of Lords. So he is Savior. He is Christ, the anointed one. And then finally, the Lord. Literally, in the original language, it, it's, it's this way. He is Christ and Lord. Lord, curios, it's a designation of deity. He is the supreme power. It means that he is the absolute and legitimate power who rules over his universe. Jesus is God. If you read the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you will see that the Tetragrammaton, or the four letters of Yahweh, is translated Lord. It's the Hebrew name for God. He is the self-existent, the eternal God. Now, if I can digress for a moment, dear friends, this is what separates Christianity from the cults. If we look, for example, in 1 John 4, we read that if anyone denies that Jesus is God, he has the spirit of the Antichrist. In fact, in verse 15 of 1 John 4, we read, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Christ was created as the, just like the, um, like, like other people, that he was created, frankly, as the archangel Michael. They would say that Jesus is a mighty God in terms of small g, but he is not God Almighty like the Father. He is a lesser God than the Father, and he should not be worshipped as the Father. And, of course, they have a whole system of salvation by works. And they believe even that Christ's spiritual and invisible second coming took place back in 1914 and that he has been ruling as king since then through the Watchtower Society. And then you have the Mormons that believe that Jesus and Lucifer were brothers, that they were both created beings, but they were not God. They believe that Jesus is merely an exalted man and that all men can become like him and become gods. They don't believe that Mary was a virgin they believe that Jesus was the bridegroom at the marriage of Cana. Of course, they believe in salvation by works, not by grace alone and so forth. But the testimony of the angel, beloved, is so clear in all of Scripture. It is that he is Savior, who is Christ the Lord. He's come to earth. And this is the fulfillment of Isaiah 9, 6, where Isaiah reminds us that his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Is there any wonder why there's an explosion here of the divine presence of the Shekinah glory of God? And what a magnificent affirmation of the deity of Christ we find in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, where we read, God in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, referring to Christ Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. I don't know how you could be any more clear. Well, herein is the reason for such joy. A Savior who is Christ the Lord has come to earth to save us from our sins. Now, we must also understand here, beloved, that God's law has been violated and his justice must be satisfied. An atonement must be made. Atonement means 
to provide a moral or legal repayment for a fault or an injury. And this is something that sinful man could never do. And so there's a huge problem here. You've got God's holy and infinite justice that needs to be satisfied, but it cannot be satisfied by man. He has to have a holy and infinite ransom. And only God could provide this. You see, if you understand the concept of atonement in the Bible, you will quickly see that there's two things that are involved here. There has to be satisfaction and there has to be substitution. There has to be satisfaction for the offended holiness of God. And that can only be accomplished by a substitution for the guilty party. What would appear to be an unsolvable dilemma, however, is perfectly resolved through the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. You will recall in 1 John 2, 2, we read that Christ Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. In other words, the satisfaction or the appeasement of God's just wrath. And in Romans 3.25, we read that God displayed Jesus publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. The term propitiation is hilasterion. And that is the very term that the Septuagint uses to translate the mercy seat in the Old Testament. The hilasterion. Christ here is a picture of the mercy seat. And the mercy seat, again, was placed atop the Ark of the Covenant that held within it the tablets of the law that had been violated. And the presence of God hovered between the cherubim, the Shekinah glory above the mercy seat. And the symbolism of the sacrifices was that there had to be the shedding of blood upon the mercy seat to somehow have forgiveness of sins. But what you must understand now with Jesus coming along, he is the mercy seat. And now we have access into the glorious presence of God because of his shed blood. You see, Jesus had to take upon himself the nature of man in order to be punished in our place. And yet he also had to be God in order to endure all of the sufferings for all who would believe. So he had to be a son of a virgin, according to the flesh, but Emmanuel, God with us, according to the spirit. Jesus had to be conceived by God and born of a virgin in order for him to be both the son of man and the son of God. Now, beloved, here's here is the the miracle of the incarnation. And this should absolutely capture the heart and soul of every Christian at this season of the year. The atoning work that God required, that work of redemption, demanded a theanthropon, in other words, a God-man. One who could supernaturally fuse the human nature with the divine nature and form an indissoluble bond. A man to bear the punishment that man deserved, but yet only God could endure it to the end. And beloved, this was all fulfilled in Christ. And for this reason, the angels declare, I bring you good news of a great joy. That is the understatement of all of the Bible. A savior who is Christ the Lord. He has come to earth 
verse 12, and this will be a sign for you and you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. You know, when you read that text, you have to say, oh, my word, how infinitely incongruent. Are you telling me that the Lord of glory has condescended to the form of a human infant? And then on top of that, he, we're not going to find him seated upon a throne of, of grandeur in, in Caesar's palace in Rome. We're not going to find him surrounded by a heavenly host. Are you telling us that that he's not clothed in the royal purple robes of majestic splendor, that he's not somehow surrounded by unapproachable light? No, no, he, he's just a baby wrapped in in cloths like like every other child. But the difference is he's in an animal trough. Oh, beloved, what a humble Savior. How inconceivable. And isn't it interesting that on the heels of of this statement, notice the response in verse 13. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. Now, let's stop here for a moment. It says a multitude that translates the Greek word 10,000. That was the largest Number that they had in their language. We can read in other passages of Scripture what this might refer to. Revelation 5 1, we read that John saw 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands of angels. We don't know how many angels there were here, but the point is simply this there were a lot of angels. There were a multitude of angels, literally. It's probably referring to hundreds of millions of angels suddenly appear. You know, as I think about this, beloved, while all of creation is an orchestra of praise and a choir of adulation, creation's praise was altogether eclipsed by the sudden eruption of angelic adoration. Here you have the angelic host that has for untold millennia worshipped the triune God. Those angels now express their doxology. These magnificent creatures who have witnessed the infinite perfection of relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. These celestial spectators of infinite sovereignty and holiness and the ineffable glory of God. These ministering spirits who instantly do The bidding of God perfectly. These angels who are fully aware of the divine decrees to somehow save a chosen group of sinners. Suddenly they bear witness to this to this miraculous birth upon which the world would establish its calendar. With their own eyes, they see the Lord of glory emptying himself, taking upon the form himself, the form of a bondservant. And appearing in the likeness of a man, an infant that God would grow to be a man, yet fully God, who would one day become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Oh, no wonder they would praise God and say glory to God in the highest. You see, their exuberance is fueled by the reality that now the mighty work of redemption is underway upon the earth. 
Now we are witnessing a new dimension of the glory of God. We are seeing his humility and his grace and his love in the incarnation of the Son. A love that they cannot understand, nor can we. But dear friends, please understand now, there's much more than his birth that fuels their praise. I want you to notice what they were saying. And again, as a footnote, I want to emphasize the word saying, not singing. There are only two times in Scripture where angels are found singing. One is in Job 38, 7, where they sang at creation before Adam sinned and probably even before Lucifer fell. And also in Revelation 5, 8 through 10, after the curse on sin is removed. And apparently in this interim period, they minister without song. We don't want to make a big deal out of it. We don't want to change the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, to Hark the Herald Angels Said. But I do want you to be aware of this distinction. So notice what they said here in magnificent unison. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Verse 14. And this leads us to our third observation, and that is the triumph of sovereign grace, where the highest creatures offer God the highest praise. The King James Version reads, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace Goodwill toward men. Now, I would submit to you that many misinterpret this text. Many people do not understand it. You see it, for example, in the inane yard decorations around our country at this time of year. You will see, for example, um, people have a big sign up that says peace on earth. And by that, they kind of have the idea that they're wanting, you know, the absence of conflict. Let's just stop all the wars. Let's all just love one another and let's enjoy a relaxed uh, uh, peace of mind, tranquility and so forth. And and that 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 is typical of our theologically ignorant culture. But I want you to understand, beloved, because of sin, there is no peace with God until there has been reconciliation through faith in Christ. But because of Christ, this is what the angels are saying here, because of Christ and because of the reconciliation that he can provide, we can have peace with God. You see, again, the wrath of God abides on unbelievers. John 3.36. Romans 5.10, we read that before we come to Christ, we are enemies of God. Colossians 1.21, we read that we were once alienated and enemies of God. So glory to God in the highest is referring to the simple fact that now God has provided a way for us to be at peace with him. It has nothing to do with let's have tranquility upon the earth. That's going to come someday when the Prince of Peace comes and brings peace. But that was not what motivated their praise. And notice also the, com- the, the phrase commonly used here, uh, with whom he is well pleased in the New American Standard. Sometimes in the New King James and even in the King James, it's goodwill toward men. Now, you will see this as well on many Christmas cards, naively thinking something like this. Let, let, let's all have goodwill towards one another. 
let's all show kindness to one another. It's kind of a, um, a sentimental version of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's the thought here. And others would errone- erroneously assume it with whom he is pleased refers to salvation through works. Well, beloved, again, may I very authoritatively tell you it has nothing to do with any of that. Neither are true. Literally, in the Greek, it's peace among men of his good pleasure. Now, here's the point. The angels are exploding in praise, saying glory to God in the highest because those who are the sovereignly chosen recipients of his grace purely because of his good pleasure can now have peace by God or peace with God by grace through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the purpose and the pinnacle of their praise. This is the triumph of sovereign grace. Beloved, this is the very heart of the gospel of the good news of Christ. All who have received the gift of salvation received it solely on the basis of his good pleasure. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. And so the angels are exploding in praise merely, not merely over the birth of Christ, but also over what he will ultimately accomplish. I want you to notice as well here the brevity of this account with, with respect to Christ's birth. It's important to realize that there are far more passages in Scripture that describe Christ's death than his birth. And sadly, I fear that most people tend to focus far more on the babyhood of Christ than on his atoning work on the cross. People prefer kind of a a, a cuddly little baby, uh, helpless and weak over a holy and a sovereign God that came to die to save sinners and a God who will pour out his wrath upon those who reject him. You know why we should all celebrate his birth. We've, We've just got to look beyond the babe in a manger and focus on the righteous demand that he places upon every man and every woman to place their trust in him as Savior and serve him as Lord. Think of him as he exists today and as he will exist in eternity. He's not a babe in a manger anymore, beloved. Think of how John describes him to the seven churches in Asia in Revelation 1, beginning in verse 4. He says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and father to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every I will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. Now, I ask you this morning, how do you see Jesus? Jesus said in John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. 
And in John 12, 46, Jesus said, I have come as light into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. My friend, is that your profession? You see, we've got to understand that Jesus will return again someday. And as I said, he will return in the same sequence as the glory departed from the temple in Ezekiel. Jesus describes it himself in Matthew 24 and verse 29. He says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky. What's the sign of the son of man? It's the glorious presence of the Lord. It's that ineffable, dazzling light of his Shekinah. It will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And the prophet Zechariah tells us in chapter 14, verse 4, In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. And the prophet Ezekiel goes on and tells us more in chapter 42, beginning in verse 1. He says, then he led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east. And behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. And it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when he came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the visions which I saw by the river Chabar. And I fell on my face and the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. And the spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. Beloved, no one will miss the light of his glory when he comes back the next time. You must understand that. Though he came the first time in obscurity, he will return in visible glory to all of the world. He came once in humility. He will return in glory. He came once as an infant child. He will return as the Lord of hosts. He came the first time as a helpless babe that laid in a manger, but he will return again and sit on a throne and rule with a rod of iron. He came the first time as a suffering servant. He will return the next time as the sovereign king. He came the first time as the living water. He will come again as the consuming fire. He came first as a lamb. He will come again as a lion. He came the first time and he opened not his mouth. But the next time he comes, the Bible tells us that from his mouth will come a sharp sword to smite the nations. He came the first time to seek and to save the lost. But when he comes again, he will come to judge the wicked. But for those of us who by grace have seen the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, we will one day witness this resplendent, dazzling light of his Shekinah, the glory of the Lord. In fact, in Revelation 21, there's a description of the new Jerusalem, the capital city of heaven that will descend into the new heavens and the new earth from the third heaven. That place where the bride will one day meet with her bridegroom, where where believers will finally have that final ceremony with 
the Lord Jesus Christ, the final ceremony of redemptive history. And it's interesting in Revelation 21, verse 22, here's what we read. John says in his vision, I I saw no temple in it, referring to the new Jerusalem. And here's why. For the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it. For the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp is the Lamb. In other words, beloved, God himself will be the temple in the eternal state. And his glory will illuminate the entire new heaven and new earth. A place where all who have trusted in Christ as Savior will enjoy the glorious presence, that limitless presence of the glory of God. A sampling of which those shepherds experienced on that Judean hillside. The question is, are you prepared to meet him as Savior or as Lord and judge? If you confess with your mouth Jesus as what? As Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. If not, Jesus said that you will be cast into the furnace of fire where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Oh, dear friend, don't limit your sight this Christmas on merely the babe in the manger, as glorious as that is. But look beyond the lowly infant to the glorious Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let, let, these, let these truths, beloved, j- just break your heart afresh. Once you once again just get lost in the wonder of all that God has done for us. Won't you confess Him as Savior and worship and obey Him as Lord? And then join with that angelic host saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. And then pray for his soon return. Maranatha, O Lord, come. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths that emerge from your word May they cause us all to worship you at a whole new level of transcendence that you might receive all of the glory that is due to your name. Lord, I pray especially for those that do not know you as Savior. They do not understand who you are as Christ. They don't obey you as Lord And yet, Lord, there are so many of these kind of people, especially in this area, who are religious. Lord, I pray that somehow you will break their hearts with the truth of their alienation from you. Cause them to see through their own hypocrisy and self-deception. And Lord, by your grace, would that you save them. Thank you for meeting with us this day. Impress upon our hearts these great truths for your glory and for our joy. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.